KYW Original Podcasts. The Coronavirus Pandemic from KYW In-Depth. So a couple of weeks ago, we went to talk to Dr. Harvey Rubin, who's an infectious disease specialist at Penn. And since then, there have been a number of major developments. And so we wanted to check back with him to see two things. One, a lot of people are wondering about the flu. Why are we shutting down schools and venues now for this pandemic when we haven't done that for the flu? Two, we also wanted to to know what he's learned since then. So we gave him a call. Hello. Hi, Dr. Hello. Hi, Carol. How are you? I'm well. Are you well? I am well. Good. (laughs) So far. (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. So a lot has changed since we spoke to you uh, two weeks ago. There are a lot of questions out there about why the government is taking such extreme measures to contain this pandemic. And a lot of people are phrasing that kind of criticism by comparing this to the flu. And they're asking, you know, we don't do this for the flu. Why are we doing this for coronavirus? Can you can you answer that question for us? Yes, and, and that's a really good question because people do have that people do have that issue. First, let me tell you some of the commonalities. Um, the uh, the way the virus is spread is pretty much the same, person to person. Um, the uh, contagiousness of this disease though is quite different. It appears that the so-called R naught. The number of people you can spread it to uh, is higher for coronavirus than it is for the seasonal flu. So immediately there's a difference. Also, there's a very high so-called titer of virus in the individual when they're asymptomatic. So you can spread the, this particular disease compared to flu much more easily early on in, the, in your infection. Another difference is that you're a contagious after you start getting symptoms. That's probably pretty much the same a week to two weeks after you develop symptoms, but the, the, you're still secreting a lot of virus after you start getting sick. The other difference is that we do have mitigation for, the, for influenza. We have the influenza vaccine. Now this year, it's not particularly effective. It's only about 40% effective, but it's certainly different than coronavirus. Um, we do have some mitigation in terms of antivirals uh, for influenza compared to coronavirus. So that's different. And very importantly, it appears that the mortality of this disease is quite different from the mortality for, um, for a flu. So up to 10, 20, 30, 40 times higher, depending on the statistics that you look at. So this is quite different from flu. Uh, you're, you're spreading it more easily. More people get sick from it. The mortality is higher, and we don't have the same kind of mitigation that we do for a flu. Um, and so I understand that people are, are confused, but we really have to take this differently. And in fact, when people have flu, we do tell them to stop and not go to work. So there is that little bit of social distancing, even with flu. But for this disease, it's utmost important for social distancing and, uh, and caring for your, for your neighbors. One of the things that come the 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 things that come up is the um that comes up is the 2009 flu pandemic the swine flu. So H1N1, that was also a new or novel strain that also spread quickly. So a lot of people are saying again, so even if you take out the we get the flu every year, but that was a pandemic. That was a new strain, but we didn't do what we're doing right now for that one either. Right. 
same reasons that we just went through. Um, and that's right, H1N1 was very serious, and, and many people unfortunately died. Um, but again, it, it, is, it didn't have the same characteristics that, that SARS-V2 has. And, and the difference, again, is the difference between risk and uncertainty. There's much more risk is something you can put a probability to. Uncertainty, we don't even know the probability distribution. We are in an uncertain environment now. We don't have the data. That's what makes this even more serious and more and more important for us to, to take measures right now. And so hopefully we'll get to the point of moving from uncertainty to risk when I can tell you certain probabilities. But in the absence of widespread testing, we haven't moved even yet from uncertainty to risk. And hopefully we'll get to that, that point pretty soon. Have you been able to look at numbers, let's say, from South Korea to get a better idea? I know the testing has been lacking in the U.S., but they, they have been ahead of it over there. Yeah, I did look at the numbers. I think we have, I have better access to the numbers in China. And in fact, um, those numbers seem to be pretty reliable. And they appear to be on the downswing after very, very um, austere containment and isolation uh, policies. I don't know that we can ever get to that point. But if you do institute very strict isolation, and then if, you, um, uh, if you're sick and quarantining, if you're trying to avoid it, um, we, we will get there. But, you know, it took a month, more than a month for China to start going on the downswing. So we're looking at um, at least a month, if not two or three, before hopefully before we get to the downswing. That's, that's, that's sort of my rough, rough uh, going over of the numbers. So if we go back to talk about mortality, you know, what you said is is a little alarming, um, simply because the CDC is estimating that 14,000 people, if I have the most up-to-date numbers, that 14,000 people have died from the flu so far, and they think that number could hit 30,000. That is from the flu. And you're saying, yeah, and you're saying it could be how many times that for coronavirus? Yeah, I think we have to be prepared for that. Um, and I think, you know, there's a vulnerable population in, in the elderly and, and our immunocompromised patients, patients who don't have access to health care. So I think we have to be prepared for that. Our hospitals have to um, ramp up their, their, their surge capacity. Um, I, I hope that the government is thinking about out-of-the-box solutions, including military hospitals if necessary. Um, and we really just have to be uh, have to be aware. We can't put our heads in the sand. We can't believe it's just going to pass through. Uh, we have to be prepared for this. And can you compare how hospitals are preparing for the coronavirus um, compared to how they prepared for the flu pandemic? Yeah, I think certainly every hospital had its uh, preparedness plans, and I think uh, that and that I think um, we're dusting them off and rolling them out. This is bigger than. Uh, than anybody had expected uh, uh, to come. It, it, it was seen we should have been prepared for this. Um, it was clearly in China in, in the early part of the winter. We should have ramped up our ability to test. We're getting there now. Um, we are putting in, uh, in process um, contingency plans for coverage in our hospital uh, and in every hospital. So uh, this is now um, basically all hands on deck, both our our doctors and nurses, our ancillary care people, volunteers, people who are coming back from retirement, uh, nurses, respiratory therapists, um, identifying the availability and location of of, of ventilators, 
um, planning for off-site or different uh, venues to keep our patients, the ones that don't need ventilators, maybe moving them around to other parts of the hospital. So there are very, very daily, multiple times a day planning sessions. People are coming back from retirement. You think you're going to need that many people? We might. We might. Absolutely. Ventilators has been, that's been a big topic of discussion. And there is a lot of concern out there that there aren't enough ventilators to handle the people who are going to need them. Is that your take on this right now? Do we have enough ventilators? Well, there are ventilators in the national stockpile. And, um, but my guess is that we will need more. Um, And I think this should have been, this should be a Manhattan-like project, ramping up testing availability, getting new ventilators uh, uh, out, tested, and uh, distributed. Uh, I think if you look at the numbers that people have been speculating about, hundreds of millions of patients, um, uh, 5% needing uh, intensive care unit beds, uh, half of those needing ventilators, um, we we will need the infrastructure in place. And hopefully we'll never, we won't have to have to roll it out, but it has to be there for our patients. There's another aspect too, this maybe you'll get to this, but going forward, um, what about kids? Uh, well, I, I do a lot of work in West Africa. And what we learned in, after the Ebola outbreak, believe it or not, was that there was a spike in childhood illnesses that are preventable by vaccines. And why is that? Because people stopped going to their normal outpatient visits. They didn't want to go to the hospital. They couldn't go to the hospital. And so a whole, you know, a year or two of childhood vaccines never got distributed. And sure enough, after the Ebola abated, we saw increased numbers of measles, increased numbers of other childhood illnesses that could have been prevented by diseases. So I'm recommending that parents check with their pediatricians and say, what are we going to do in terms of my routine immunization for my kid? Well, even We have to think going forward. I mean, even, yes, because, you know, frankly, I would hesitate unless my, obviously my children were sick, but I would not take them to the doctor right now for routine care because I think you you endanger yourself. That's right. right. And we're doing in our outpatient clinics, we're trying to do as much by telemedicine as we can. Um, So you're right. People will avoid going to the, to the hospital, going to their primary care doctor. And, and I, I'm going to tell you, that's the prediction going down the line in a year or so. We don't want to see what happened in West Africa following Ebola, because this is the long-term care that we have to start thinking about now in terms of preparedness. So we have an immediate problem, absolutely. But then we really want to think proactively about what's coming down the pike. So one of the things that this term flattened the curve that we're hearing more and more and more about, and that goes into hospital preparedness and not being overwhelmed, being prepared, but, you know, for a, this, a huge influx, right, of patients. Can you talk about what flatten the curve means and how we go about doing that? Right. That's a really important point. So flatten the curve means that you're still looking probably at a similar number of patients, but it's distributed over a longer period of time. So instead of having a peak number of patients showing up at your emergency room, uh, then you spread it out over a period of time so that the healthcare system is not overwhelmed. Um, I heard an interview on the TV this morning about uh, a report, uh, you know, a lawyer who spent six hours in the emergency room in a hospital gurney with a mask 
in the hallway waiting for his respiratory viral panel to come back. Um, you don't want to have patients lining the hallways of emergency departments uh, waiting for their results to come back in a mask, uh, overwhelming the, uh, the, the medical care system. If you flatten the curve, you avoid the, the, the peak surge and you distribute it over a longer period of time so that the healthcare system can adapt and accept those patients. And that is where this kind of social distancing comes in and the cancellation of events because you just want to slow it down? Absolutely. So the CDC now is, is lowering the number to 50, a crowd of 50. And of course, that depends on the density of that 50. You put 50 in a, in, you know, uh, outside in a very large area, that's different from 50 in, in your local bar. So, um, yeah, you really want to avoid crowds, especially but, if you're in the vulnerable population. But do you really, I mean, when I heard even the 50 benchmark, I thought, I don't want to be in a crowd of 50 people, even if it's at a park, because it just, right. you know, you're, you're, you're increasing your chances exponentially the more people you see, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I went for a long run yesterday in the Unforbidden Drive. I felt perfectly safe. Um, uh, you know, I wasn't running in a big crowd of people the way you would see on the Broad Street run, for example. Um, but, you know, it was open and it, there was lots of room around and, and I, I felt perfectly self safe and, and I didn't feel I was, in, in, you know, engaging other people and other people weren't engaging me. So I think people have to um, be uh, a little bit aware of this, have to be a lot aware of their surroundings and, and who they're coming in contact with. Well, I mean, I do go outside as well. I go out to the park. I live near a park, and yeah. I have teenagers. And, um, you know, they keep asking, can we meet with friends at the park? And I say, well, they ride their bike. I said, just keep a distance, no sports where you get close. It's really hard sometimes to balance, you know, what is appropriate without putting yourself at risk but not being kind of crazy about it or overly nuts about it. No, you're right. And, and mental health is a really important part of this whole response. People have to find ways to adapt and, and keep an eye out on their neighbors, especially their elderly neighbors, um, and, you know, call them up and say, how are you doing? Do you need anything? Um, so you're right. And, you know, and, and when schools being closed, you don't want, you know, 20 kids in your basement um, uh, slobbering all over each other, sharing soft drinks. <laughs> Um, if we could go back to flatten the curve, I'm curious. I don't remember this being spoken about during the flu pandemic of 2009. Was was that an issue then? Yeah, it didn't seem to be as as uh, widely um, uh, sort of discussed as certainly this is. And again, I think it's a get because of this this notion of risk versus uncertainty. There's a lot more uncertainty surrounding this outbreak than that outbreak. Um, it was a more it was a more even though it was a, a relatively novel. Um, a flu strain. There seemed to we we seem to understand it more than we do to this date yet. Uh, coronavirus, but there was there were clearly advice. Don't come. You know, there's, the hospitals are still full of those signs. If you're sick, don't visit patients. If you're sick, stay away from work. So that that was a remnant from those days as well. So there was that notion of social distancing, uh, but not nearly as intense as it is now. And I think for good reason. Now we're still dealing in, in a lot of uncertainties. So what's your opinion? Should the entire nation be on basically a lockdown where everybody is required to close schools and close malls and that kind of thing? And is well, you, two weeks enough? 
<laughs> Very good question. Uh, first question first. Um, uh, you, you've seen the the angst that the whole New York City school system has undergone, where first um, the the governor and the mayor was saying we're going to keep things open because it's better for kids to be in school, and now the schools are closed. Um, I think that it is time for very very draconian measures to be put in place, um, and that that's a huge social responsibility for families and and workers, and I understand that. We have to step up as a, as a community of both individuals. And, and as we spoke two weeks ago, you're the, the preparedness of, of the community. So I think it is time for um, a, a, a coordinated, not only national response, but a coordinated international response. We've written, you know, my group has written a lot about global governance. And this is an example where global governance for infectious disease is absolutely critical. Um, the second part of your question is, is two weeks enough? Um, I'm fair, and Tony Fauci uh, addressed this as well. I think we're fairly confident that two weeks is sufficient. Um, I looked last night on the data. There are a couple of case reports of, of as long as 24 days, um, but I think I think two weeks is until we have more data. And again, this is all in the absence of of, of hard data um, and testing. I'm, I'm fairly confident that two weeks should be should be enough. But why would it be so? In other words, if you know, the infection is still spreading. And from what I understand, you're talking the two week is because there's there's generally a two week incubation period, correct, where you start to show symptoms. Right, right. But, right. If, but if you and still then, have... And then you're symptomatic. You may, be, you may be able to spread virus, by the way, for another week or even two after you recover. Now, it may not be a, a sufficient titer to cause disease, but you can still recover the virus and secretions then. But you're right. If you go back out again and you're re-exposed, then you're back to another two weeks. You're exactly right. And there, you know, and what you told us before when we last spoke was that, um, you know, you're 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 contagious while you're asymptomatic as well, right? Correct. All right. So, because I've warned my kids, I said, be prepared to be out of school for the rest of the school year. <laughs> Not really oh, confident yeah, yeah. that they're going back. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, getting kids to to do online learning. It's, uh, you know, they're much more used to sitting in front of their computer than I think people of my generation, but it's something that this is where, this is where it's going to be a great test case. Can we do this? How Can long? we do this as a community? Yeah, it's real. it's a big adjustment, isn't it? Absolutely. So yeah. how much longer do you think, or how long do you think this is going to last? Uh, uh, I get that uh, Months, months. And there's no, you know, do you have any more insight into whether or not this is seasonal? Because it's, there seems to be some indication that perhaps it's, it's not. Yeah, I think, I think relying that this is going to uh, all of a sudden pass through and disappear in the warm weather, that's wishful thinking. I, I hope it's true. I see, I, I don't think anybody sees any evidence that that's going to be the case, though. So, Dr. Rubin, what else, you know, we spoke to you about two weeks ago. What else have you learned about it since then? Um, so I, I think what we're learning now is uh, a couple of things. Both we're learning more and more about the biological nature of the, of the, of the virus and how long it's shed and what the mortality rate is and what the r naught is as more data comes in. We've certainly learned uh, policy issues, how important uh, it, the availability of testing is and how do you ramp up public-private partnerships. So we're learning a lot about policy. We're learning a lot about the, uh, the surge capacity of our facilities. Um, so we're learning more about 
policy and uh, social and uh, community response um, than we are yet still even about the virus. But we're, the more data that comes in, um, the, the more information we'll be able to make our decisions based upon. Um, the other thing is we're learning how critical it is to get truthful, transparent, honest directions and information from uh, our political leaders. I think people like Dr. Fauci have done a remarkable, fantastic job in trying to put this in the context of science and medicine. Uh, we, we, we really need to have our political leaders and our social leaders and our community leaders to be honest and open and truthful with us. So the tests they're telling us are rolling out this week, right? Uh, we've been behind. Correct. So once those tests start rolling out, they're talking about doing drive-by testing, opening parking lots and malls, perhaps theaters, um, places that are closed uh, so that people can, you know, roll up in their cars. We've seen that in Delaware, actually, recently. Um how quickly do you think we'll get information from those tests? In other words, so that you have a how quickly will we have a better understanding of that since these tests are going out this week? Yeah, oh, I, I think that's really important. We should, you know, the turnaround time should be less than a day or two, a couple of days. So I, I hope we'll start getting the data within the week and certainly within two within two weeks. The other thing that China did that was, you know, you talked about draconian measures. If you look at some of the pictures coming out of China, how they cut down was they stopped home quarantining. And basically, as soon as you had a fever, you know, boom, you went right into kind of the fever clinic, the fever ward, if you will. You know, Mm -hmm. you didn't get to go home. Um, That's a big difference with, you know, how China and that's how they from what I've read, that's how right that they managed to really cut down on the daily spike in cases. And you spoke about, you know, kind of about what we need to do here. You need, we need the military. We need offsite locations for people who perhaps don't need ventilators. So are you talking about, do we need to do that? Do we need to say, oh, you have a fever. You can't even go home. You need to go here. I think in terms of the question of, of should we, should we try and um, mimic what the Chinese did in terms of fever clinics, chest CTs, rapid viral panels, before you even go home. And I think we may, we may come to that. I don't know that we're set up to do that, but that did seem to start you know, making a downturn in the number of cases. Um, uh, so we need to be very creative in how we respond to this. And that may be one way. Don't, you know, until we clear you, you're, you're not going home. But then you have to set up these offsite facilities to house these patients. Have you heard anything about Hahnemann getting that back up as potentially a, a, I, I, a site? I hear that all the, I hear that all the time, um, and that could be a potential off-site facility. I, I honestly don't know where that stands. Dr. Rubin, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your knowledge. No. You're sharing your knowledge and expertise here. Well, thank you for doing this. Uh, disseminating information is really important. Thank you. It is, and we'll be calling you again soon. <laughs> okay. Thank, thank you. you. Take care. Be well. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm Carol McKenzie. That's it for KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. We'll be back with another one soon.